Me to really appreciate you being on here. So everybody that's uh, coming on here, this is the Art of Mindful Medicine, episode number thirty. I am Dr. Seth Gilson, functional and holistic dentist, certified yoga teacher, personal and coach, which most of you know by now. Um, and of course, our awesome guest today is Dr. Michelle Weiner. And I'm going to give you a little intro, and then we're going to get into this, so you guys can understand a little bit more about who she is and what she does. So. Dr. Wiener is a double is double board certified in interventional pain medicine and physical medicine and rehabilitation. She completed her residency and fellowship training at the University of Miami. She is the chair of Florida's Medical Cannabis Advisory Committee. Committee, Dr. Wiener's unique approach to personalized and preventative medicine focuses on empowering her patients to cultivate health using lifestyle and plant medicine. Her research focuses on using cannabis as a substitute for opioids in chronic pain patients and cannabis's effects on seniors with chronic pain. She is faculty and preceptor at Nova Southeastern University, in which she educates the medical students through shadowing opportunities in her office. Dr. Wiener is the vice president of Mr. Psychedelic Law, a not-for-profit with the mission of responsible legal reform of psilocybin mushrooms in Florida. She is conducting an IRB-approved clinical trial through the University of Miami on ketamine-assisted psychotherapy for chronic pain and depression, comparing routes of administration. She uses cannabis and ketamine-assisted psychotherapy as a catalyst to identify the root cause of one's suffering, optimizing their, which optimizes their quality of life. So, Michelle, thank you very much again for being on here. And um, what I always like to do at the start of these... Uh, interviews is to ask you three things that you are grateful for today. Oh, okay. Um, all right. I will say my children easily. My, <laughs> I have a six and an eight year old and they are a huge source of love in my life. So I'm grateful for my children. I am grateful for, uh, for you for giving me a space that I can actually educate people on cannabis and psychedelics. And I am grateful for my health. Absolutely. I appreciate that. And uh, if you could tell everybody a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your background, childhood, growing up, kind of like where you're from and, and then kind of leading into to where you are now. Sure. So I'm originally from New York. Um, I was raised on Long Island. I was there all throughout high school, very athletic. I have an identical twin sister, so that, that's a big part of my life. I went to um, University of Florida for undergrad, so my family was really interested in probably moving to Florida because of the weather, and so I became a, a Floridian in, during college, and um, I had a great time in college, and I thought I wanted to be a physical therapist because I was athletic, and I wanted to help people and be in the medical field, and then uh, I decided to go to medical school instead, and my um, residency was physical medicine and rehab, which is based on musculoskeletal medicine, non-surgical orthopedics, traumatic brain injury, spinal cord injury, so some neuro, psych, and uh, pain, and, and ortho. And then I liked procedures a lot, so I decided to do a fellowship in pain management, learning epidurals, all different types of injections, and that I did at uh, University of Miami. And I did my master's in public health because I like research. And so um, I started practicing pain management and I realized that we just didn't have enough, you know, tools in our toolbox and we just didn't have enough holistic options. And I, I'm a DO, I went to Nova 
I always practice with more of a natural mindset. Um, and so cannabis became legal here about six or seven years ago. I started using it for patients uh, who were on opioids, trying to reduce their amount of pain meds. And then I learned a lot about the plant as I saw that they were sleeping better, they had less anxiety, less depression. And I was actually just doing a lecture to the University of Miami medical students. And it was funny because one of them asked, you know, how can we learn about this? And I remember six years ago when I didn't know how to dose a patient, I didn't know what, you know, milligrams of THC meant or what tinctures meant and, <laughs> you know, how much I learned from my patients and learned from the dispensaries. And so, so, so my, my practice kind of changed where I started using cannabis instead of a lot of pharmaceuticals and, uh, understanding more about plant medicine and real and, and kind of being more comfortable with myself in the sense of, you know, I did all this training and now I'm just practicing cannabis, right? And I mm -hmm. realized that it, it just, it, it was more aligned with who I am. And, you know, it took me a little while to, you know, I still do a lot of pain management and regular insurances and things like that, but I'm much less interventional. I, I really believe that the patient should, we should empower the patients to really take their health into their own hands as opposed to disempower them mm -hmm. by, by basically just letting them take a medication. And so I started doing more lifestyle medicine, learning about meditation, nutrition, exercise, and um, being involved in this whole paradigm shift of no longer just giving the patient a prescription and having them just go home and you know do as directed. Um, and then ketamine, I've always, you know, used that because I'm a pain physician, but now we started using ketamine for mental health. And that to me is, you know, is, is interesting because I'm not a psychiatrist and um, I always work with a therapist for the patient, but I've learned so much by working with the therapist about mental health and about therapy and um, alignment and how to connect. And, um, and that's really like what, you know, cannabis and ketamine teaches the patients how to connect with themselves, what happens at non-ordinary states of consciousness, and it's very transformative. So my practice now is, it's, is you know, I don't, I don't mind going to work because I really do help patients and it's, mm -hmm. it takes listening to the patient and it takes, um, it takes time because they really have to be educated about cannabis being a plant that is personalized and you know, I get patients all the time who say, I'm, I, I want psilocybin. I'm like, I can't help you. That's not legal, you know? <laughs> so it's a, it's, a lot of, it's a lot of education, but it's really looking at pain from a perspective of it's not just what's happening to the tissue, but it's actually what's happening to your entire life, how you can relate to that pain, how you're more than just your pain. And so, so I've learned a lot from after my training, and most of what I practice now, I've learned from other physicians in other states or just you know, kind of a lot from patients too. So I'm, I'm very, I'm a very team oriented person. You know, I always like to, to learn from other people. And um, I think what's happened is that our current treatments are just not effective and mm -hmm. we really need other options. So it's an exciting time in medicine. It's just, um, it's just, a, it's just difficult because a lot of these medicines are schedule one drugs. And so it's navigating that. Yeah, no, that, that makes a whole lot of sense. I, I mean, I, there, I mean, we're in very different fields, but um, there, there's a lot of parallels, especially when it comes to pain and, and education, lifestyle, and holistics. And th this isn't stuff that we're generally taught. We're not taught in schools, and the public just doesn't get at all. So I feel like, um, we're, we're, like you just said, we're, we're educating a lot, and we're also learning a lot because when one teaches, two learn. 
so right. that it's really 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 valuable um so you just gave a really nice summary of where you grew up to all the things that you've kind of experienced so what would you say is a, is a passion or inspiration that's driven you through all of this um to continue educating yourself to continue finding new modalities to continue kind of going through this in some respects kind of on your own because i i kind of know what that feels like when you don't really have a huge group or someone to turn to maybe i don't know if you had a mentor or anything like that but um what what would you say is that driving force behind you i originally how i got into this actually i have i had a very very strong connection with my grandmother and she suffered from chronic pain and at the time i was probably like a medical student and i remember her being on tramadol which is like a weak opioid and um and so you know i i i didn't know much about it at that time and she ended up passing away from a side effect of that medication and it kind of became like this you know mission that i had to really see if i could find alternatives especially in the senior population for chronic pain so they don't have to take opioids so that initially was a driving force i had to learn more about cannabis and to teach the elderly population how to use it in a safe way and obviously you know everybody can use it it's, it's not just for specific indications but um, that initially was a driving force and then and then it was interesting because i'm not i never was the type that like you know spoke and and did all these lectures and, and and then i realized like there's nobody else in florida who really knows a lot about cannabis and unless someone gets up there and starts really talking about the science and the endocannabinoid system and reviewing all the evidence-based research studies, then Florida is just not going to progress. So mm -hmm. I had, you know, a few other doctors and I would do a lot of these conferences and try to educate people. And I, then I had patients who their life was just changed by cannabis, you know, and it, it became like very inspirational. Um, I have like a mentor in another state that I spent some time with and he's taught me a lot. His name is Dustin Sulak. Um, and he also uses ketamine, but he, you know, we do it in a very similar manner, which is basically having the right intention and having a lot of education behind it. Because I feel like when people do things, you know, when they're prepared properly and it's done in a safe environment, um, then that's really what harm reduction is. It's just offering another option to someone who is probably using something that is covered by insurance, for example. Mm -hmm. so, so that that initially was it, and and um, and now now it just has become like part of who I am. Like it's you know when I would normally say let's do an epidural injection, I say let's do cannabis, and it just makes sense with it just makes sense with how I practice because I really want the person to be a little bit more accountable for their pain, for their choices that they're making, as opposed to just the quick, easy, you know, band aid. And I think that that that's kind of like the issue we have these days is really with instant gratification, right? Like people just want that. And I think that's just a path to suffering. You know, people who are just kind of going to wanting the quick fix, they're never really getting to the root cause of it. And really it has to do with how much risk are they willing to take, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think, I think it's just trying to teach them that they need to be a part of their healing process. And our body has, a lot of different mechanisms to to allow us to heal and we have this like innate you know intelligence and we're not really using it because we're over medicating people and we don't really take a second to educate them and say like what are you eating or you know when was the last time you exercised like all of these things are are 
very How are you expensive. sleeping? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. How are you sleeping? Right. So I, I, it's really just looking at the whole person and not just the symptom that they came in for. And that's and, and it's also nice because now I have relationships with my patients where I know them and I know that they're doing well and they, you know, email me and, and I give them suggestions and it's just a different way of practicing. Totally. I completely relate. I mean, when you create those kind of somewhat personal relationships with people, not only do they value it more, like you can treat them better right. and you can help them educate themselves and get better to the point where maybe they don't have to take anything, which is right. kind of the goal. And, <laughs> right. No, and, and even with cannabis, like they'll, they'll take more in the beginning while they're trying to, you know, get their sleep pattern um, into some type of cycle or they're trying to get their pain under control. And then once that whole process feels a little better to them, they're able to significantly decrease their cannabis. And then maybe they use it for a different reason, or maybe mm -hmm. they'll just, you know, use less amounts of it. And, and then they'll start to respect the plants or they'll respect how it makes them feel. Or they'll, they'll understand how to listen to their body. And that is like a huge component, I think, with, with what we're missing. Like I, I was just doing this lecture and I'm like, to the medical students at UM, I'm like, are you guys learning about cannabis? Are you learning about the endocannabinoid system? And none of them had any idea what I was saying, mm -hmm. which is such a disservice because a lot of the patients ask the residents, they'll say, you know, what do you think of this? And now some patients aren't open and free to just tell their doctor because they think they're going to be judged. Yeah. So there's, there's like, a, you know, there's a lot of education that has to be done, but it's really kind of getting rid of the stigma and anything can be used in an irresponsible way, but if you educate the you know the right person, then you have a better chance of actually them having a better outcome. Exactly, and, and I'm sure part of a big part of what you do is screening the people that actually come to see you. Right, so. right. Yeah, so it's a regular consultation where we review their whole history, understand the medications, and then specific intentions, and then trying to personalize their cannabis regimen based on the condition, the time of day, how sensitive they are to THC, all those different components awesome all right we're gonna get into the, a few of those things um, but uh, I do want to take a few minutes to talk about something that you kind of alluded to a little bit and that's mindfulness um, first can can you express to us what mindfulness means to you yeah so I'm a big fan of um, Tara Brock I don't know if you know Tara Brock but um, no, I, she, I think I've heard the name yeah her, her mnemonic is rain it's recognized yes Recognize, I have heard that. Allow, integrate and nurture. So, so mindfulness to me is is really just being aware of of how you're feeling, like listening to your body, and um, and I think awareness is really like the first component to healing. Like we really have to be even like I have to be very grounded when when I'm in the room with a patient, for example, so that I understand this is their energy, this is their anxiety, this is their depression, this is their frustration, their tired, you know, whatever it is. So mindfulness to me is really being aware of how I'm feeling and um, and then using the, the mind-body connection. So understanding that our body is, is listening to your body. Tell, what is your body telling you? Where, where in your body do you feel that and why? And that's important because I find like many people are very reactive and the way that we are able to assess the situation and then integrate it and nurture it is to be aware of where it's coming from. Is there a specific trigger that made you feel that way? So mindfulness is like the first step, I think, to, to healing. And it's, it's really just awareness. And then once you're aware, you can then start to align 
mind and body. Yes, self-awareness and awareness in general is, I've always said, well, always, as long as I've been on this, what do you want to call journey, um, that awareness is the, the first step to just about any kind of um, personal change you want to make. So I think that's fantastic. Um, how would you say that mindful practices show up for you in your life? And then how, are you, how do you go about incorporating that into your practice uh, with some of the things you just said? Yeah, I think... I think for me, it's um, it's it's like um, a therapist that I work with. She always says the power is in the pause, right? So, like for me, it's always again. I always go back to listening to my body and understanding that a thought is just a thought, right? Like we we may we get consumed with these thoughts, and then the thoughts really like live in our body. And I, I think a lot of people who suffer from depression or PTSD, they don't realize that a thought is just a thought, and that the thought should be clear. So for, for me, I think it's really uh, taking a pause and not being so reactive. I used to be, I, used, I am, but I, I'm less now in the sense of everything has to be done right now, you know, and that's, that's <laughs> kind of like where it shows up for me, like all day long, you know, with work and my phone and different things that are happening, I'm so reactive to try to respond to something so I don't forget it later on. And I think that that has done me a disservice at one time and now I'm much more aware of the fact that I can take a second I can think about this before I respond that I don't have to, where's my emotion coming from why am I being reactive to this and so taking a pause has always you know has now helped me a lot and and also realizing that I create my own um, crazy you know what I mean? Like, yeah. If I'm initiating a text or a conversation at the wrong time, then I'm just making it more difficult for myself. So I, I think it's that we get involved in this like impulsive loop, you know, and, and I think that that hurts a lot of people. And it's a, it's that fear of, will I have time later on? So for me, it's just it's just being aware of how I'm feeling and what is causing that. And, you know, trying to stay as grounded as I possibly can. And then um, you know, kind of switching out of sympathetic and parasympathetic mode, like really getting into that parasympathetic mode and when I'm in it, actually fully being in it, which mm. is putting your phone down, you know, and, and taking time out to really have quiet time and, and to appreciate what happened during the day or to look forward to something else, but actually taking a moment to have, you know, time, like parasympathetic time, which you would say, I guess, is like, uh, rest and digest or tend and befriend all that good stuff <laughs> you know we, we don't do that enough we do, we're too we're too much in that reactive state and i think that is a, a huge source for chronic disease and, and inflammation in general for sure uh, do you do you have any specific practices that you use uh, i i like the calm app that's that's a, a good one for meditation there's also headspace that is pretty good uh, i personally love exercise that's kind of my that's my thing, like even more so than meditating. And I happen to follow someone, her name is Rachel Robinson or Rachel Fitness, and she's a South Florida person. And she does like an Instagram live, but I'll catch some of hers, you know, later on. So I think I think movement is really important. I, I try to do exercise um, as often as I can. And then meditation, I would say like Calm or Headspace are the best apps. I like a guided one versus, you know, me doing it myself. Gotcha, great. Um, and you, you talked a little bit about before about how you utilize it in your practice, but how's, how do you go about introducing this concept? 
I mean, maybe ne- maybe even not even not even using the word mindfulness, but how do you introduce this concept into somebody's life that's never even had any kind of previous experience with this? So usually I'll I do like a body scan with them. You know, like usually I'll I'll actually have them I'll, because you can feel the energy in the room. You know, so I'll 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 ask them like, where are you feeling more tension? You know, or uh, can you tell me the last time that you felt anxious? What caused it? It's like you know, and and I think that when you're in the room with a patient, they they have confidence, hopefully, in the provider. But there's, it's also a safe, like a safe uh, place, right? And that's really important for people to create that safe space. And the practitioner needs to hold space so that the patient is able to share really what they're feeling. So. For me, I, I, I'll, I'll have them understand a, a time when they felt anxious or they felt tension or they felt depressed and then like kind of review why that happened and what they did about it and what they could do about it instead. And then, and then just trying to ask them, what's your daily practice look like? Do you even have one of those? You know, what, what does your nutrition, exercise, meditation, breath work? And then really you're trying to get a feel for um, how comfortable they are with this language because sometimes and, and I, I, I know for years of trying to use you know cannabis for patients that I get all the looks and the stigmas there and so I don't really like you know it's not a big deal for me but you want to bridge the conversation in a way that they're not resisting or that that the education can come past their stereotype right Correct. so so I think it's just you know perhaps if, if you I, I'll give them an app. Like I don't like them to leave without any like specific direction. I feel like that's where therapists and other doctors um, they need to give people actual homework. That's how I feel. Like if you say, "Oh yeah, I'm going to start exercising," but you have no idea what exercise, what time of day, for how long, and you have no plan, then it's going to be much more difficult than if you had a plan. And it's the same thing with meditation and mindfulness. It's okay if you need help. Here are some good people who can help you. This is a good app. This is you can try this on YouTube. And understanding why, why the importance of parasympathetic, the importance of resting your nervous system, and also, uh, and then you explain it to them by saying, how do you feel in that reactive state? If that's something you don't want to do, this is this is an option that's completely free, that mm-hmm. you know, you're able to do without taking a medication. And it's something that over time, and with the right person, they'll they'll commit to it. There's also uh, places where I recommend for like group sessions, or if people want to do it in a collective space, that they can do that. But a lot of times, at first, it's just kind of like, what do you think about the word meditation and breath work, and trying to get their, you know, their uh, facial expressions. <laughs> right. Yeah. No. That that's a great um, overview of how mindfulness and the, these different practices, or whatever, whatever you want to refer to them as how they impact our overall health. Because kind of when, you, when we're resetting our nervous system or just resting our nervous system, it makes a huge difference for us. So, um, wonderful. Let's, uh, let's talk more about what, what you do in practice now. Um, so, when did you start becoming more interested in discovering like the, the root cause issues uh, about patients' ailments and things like that? And, and what, what have you learned through that process? So, I think the... I think the cannabis plant, because we have these cannabinoid receptors in our entire body, right? Like our whole central nervous system, different organs, our muscles, 
when you use cannabis, it activates all different receptors. And so that's how I was able to learn, especially through patients, is how someone's pain is more than just what's happening to their physical body. And I think that the whole mind-body connection, it, it, um, it wasn't taught in med school, you know, that's something that we're not really familiar <laughs> with. So like, it, it, it sounds like to physicians, like what other healthcare practitioners say, but then I think the cannabis plant actually solidifies the fact how there is such a connection there. And it may be that we just have to play with the endocannabinoid system in order for people to understand that. Mm-hmm. And so I think after a lot of patients were using cannabis and, and I realized that their physical body was having pain because of mental health reasons, it really changed how I practice pain management. And I think that, you know, obviously if you have a disc herniation, you need an epidural, that's great. That'll get rid of your pain. But if you have chronic pain, and, and we're not really getting to the root cause of the source, a lot of times what happens, especially when using cannabis or even ketamine, they're able to identify different traumas that have happened. And it's like the book, you know, The Body Keeps the Score, the whole concept that our body is, is telling us things that have happened that is stored within our nervous system. And so some people have chronic pain and maybe it's related to a sexual assault they had, or some people have chronic pain and it doesn't get better why, why did someone's acute pain turn into chronic pain? And that has to do with a hyperreactive immune system or nervous system at the time of that trauma. So when things are not working in the path that they should and things are not calming down, then that's when we have to look at, well, what's really the source of this? And so I find like when, like, when people come to me and they're, they, they're kind of like coming to me because nothing else has worked. That's really like why they end up with cannabis, which is really unfortunate as opposed to like a a front line it's a plant i was just gonna say it's become more of like a fringe thing or it's always been well i mean it was illegal first and then now even though it's accepted widely throughout the u.s and and other parts of the world that it's a fringe kind of treatment and it it has fantastic utilization most of the most of the patients are like well, this is my last hope. So if this doesn't work, I don't know what I'm going to do, which is always like a great thing to hear from the patients. But, um, you know, in general, I think like a lot of times we're treating because doctors now have specialties that they only look at their specialty and really like cannabis and ketamine and psychedelics. it, It makes you look at the whole person and it makes you understand things that have happened to you in the past and different traumas can really show up in the body in different ways. And so for the things that we can explain, that's sometimes why cannabis and ketamine will help. And also will just help them um, deal with the fact that they're, you know, the problem really is that we put everything into a diagnosis, right? So label it. Right. And so when you give someone, okay, you have diabetes or you have uh, peripheral neuropathy, you're basically sending someone home saying you have a disease, right? You have something wrong with you. You put them in their box and then you put them over there. Yeah. And then now that they're in their box, they see a specific specialist who gives them a specific medicine and doesn't really look at everything else, as opposed to um, not labeling someone all the time and trying to understand the root cause of it. So I think that that we've gotten so used to what's your diagnosis so that we can give you an FDA approved medication for your condition and we can bill your insurance, as opposed to look at the whole person. And so really cannabis and ketamine allows me to do that uh, and, and on a different level and really kind of like expand 
how we're practicing medicine. So it's not just pharmaceuticals, but it's really more transformative and getting to why some of this this happened. And then so, also like tendencies towards, you know, a lot of people are coping with uh, very bad mechanisms and leading to addiction as opposed to connection. So it's really now helping people connect as opposed to go to that quick fix and then, you know, have uh, some type of maladaptive behavior. Mm -hmm. So basically, I, get, I think in, in a, a decent summary of what you're saying is that the, the physical body, I mean, it allow these treatments allow you and the patients themselves to understand more of their own physical body as well as the emotional body and then kind of how they are bridged together because it all is one, right? Right. So, right. Um, yeah. I mean, the brain is, your your head is on top of your body, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> it's all connected. Our nervous sure system, like the way that, the way that we eat affects the way that, you know, our brain is functioning, the way that we think will affect our physical body too. So. It's really more of understanding that that connection truly is real, and even even like the the mindfulness research done at, at Harvard, mm -hmm. that's that's real evidence based research, and there, a lot of the psychedelics um, replicate what meditation and breath work can do. It's just that it's an easier thing to mm -hmm. get medicine to put you in that state than to work hard because. You know, practice makes perfect, right? If people were to practice meditation, I'm sure they would be great going into that state. But a lot of people just need that catalyst, need that help to kind of put them into that state. Exactly. So you you mentioned a couple of things that that I am definitely really interested in touching on. Um, you've said a few times the endocannabinoid system. So first of all, I'd like you to uh, say a little bit more of like actually what that is, because people are probably like like this is a foreign word to them. Um, which is fine. And then also you're talking about lifestyle medicine or lifestyle um, changes. And I'd like you to first explain the endocannabinoid system a little bit. I know that's very complex. So like what, however you can summarize it. And then um, how lifestyle choices really do contribute to overall health or improving one's overall health. Sure. So, okay, the endocannabinoid system, endo, it means inside. Cannabinoid is a part of, you know, cannabis. And then... Uh, system so basically like we have a cardiovascular system we have an endocrine system it's a system in our body that was discovered because people were using cannabis and having all different effects and so they discovered we actually have receptors that are activated by the plant they found them in our central nervous system in our organs and then the question really was did we get these receptors just to smoke the cannabis plant right did, did god or whoever give us this system just to use cannabis and they discovered that we make naturally occurring cannabinoids in our body. And so the THC, which is found in cannabis, we make a very similar structure called anandamide. Ananda means the bliss molecule. And so we make, and then another one's called 2-AG. So we make- um, It's called anandamide. Yeah. I and didn't know that, because Ananda, okay, well, keep going. It's bliss, right? Yes, yes. So they, they called our naturally occurring cannabinoids anandamide. And, um, and so the point is, is that we make our endogenous cannabinoids on demand based on free fatty acids, based on you know, that. And that's kind of going back to the lifestyle thing. What we eat will turn into endogenous cannabinoids. You know, if we don't have any free fatty acids, omega-3 and 6, if we have um, issues with uh, digestion, and that's going to play a role into endogenous cannabinoid levels. So. Anyway, we make these these endogenous cannabinoids, we have enzymes that break it down and they activate our receptors. 
there's many conditions that we have deficiencies in our endogenous cannabinoids like fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, um, IBS. These are all conditions where we don't make enough. And so the question is, why are we making enough? It could be trauma, it could be um, any type of infection, any type of injury. And when you don't make enough, the way to increase the level is to take CBD because CBD inhibits the enzyme that breaks down our endogenous cannabinoids, so it allows us to have more. And then um, THC activates the receptor, which is why we get more of that psychoactive effect. So the, the, the whole system is, is the receptors, the endogenous cannabinoids, and what we want to do is promote our own endogenous cannabinoids so we don't really need to supplement with the plant. And the system, since it's found in all parts of our body, has to do with all of the other systems. So you can't just look at the heart and not, you know, look at the lungs or the adrenal glands. Everything it's all has connected. To, it's all connected. And even more so, the endocannabinoid system plays a role in all the other systems. So that's why we can use cannabis to treat so many different conditions because the receptors are everywhere and it has multiple effects. And and that's kind of why lifestyle goes hand in hand with cannabis because like for example the the runners high is actually not just an increase in our endorphins it's an increase in our endogenous cannabinoid levels and that's why it's called the runner's high it's it's really an increase in anandamide the interesting thing about that is that people who exercise if they're doing an exercise that they don't enjoy they don't have an increase in their endogenous cannabinoids yeah so it's like a, a blunted response so all things like you know eating less inflammation um exercising meditating being into the in the parasympathetic mode all of those are lifestyle things that we can do to promote a healthy endocannabinoid system and at the same time people who overuse cannabis which is a real thing cannabis use disorder that's take, that's using so much cannabis that you're saturating your cannabinoid receptors and obviously you build tolerance and you'll need more and more cannabis for the same effect but you can actually have a dysregulated endocannabinoid system from using too much cannabis and that happens a lot too so it's really a nice it's really a, a nice balance of promoting your endocannabinoid system and using cannabis for whatever you need it for as, a, as opposed to like, you know, overdoing it like anything else. Awesome, awesome, awesome. And then, so you were talking about the different cannabinoids. What, how, how are some of these used and what are the different, like you said CBD and THC. And I know those are the two main ones amongst a bunch of others that, that people probably haven't heard of, but because those are the two main ones and, and we don't have enough time to go in, in depth and all of it, it's like, what, what are the general uses and the effects of, of utilizing those two um, uh, cannabinoids so CBD is mainly mainly I use it for inflammation anxiety and then to counteract the high that's really important so when you're using C CBD with THC it will decrease some of the intoxication that's why you can use like a one-to-one -one ratio mm -hmm. or a higher CBD to THC ratio but you know people try CBD for everything and like the placebo effect is still like 33 percent but you know, for the most part, if you get to the right dose, which is always important, it can help with anxiety and definitely great for inflammation. THC, um, it's, it's activating your receptors. It can increase your appetite. It can help with sleep. It can help with pain, muscle spasms, um, depression. Uh, there's a lot of things that, you know, cancer patients who are suffering from nausea and vomiting. So it has many 
it has many potential. It's just a matter of how sensitive the person is to THC, and then do they need the CBD to take away some of the high? Uh, it's great for sleep. Great. And then there's, there's other cannabinoids like CBN is good for sleep. CBG is good for anxiety and inflammation. Also, some of these other cannabinoids I'll use in pediatrics or even someone during the day when they don't want to add THC because they're at work. So then we'll add another cannabinoid. And then the terpenes are really important. The terpenes are what gives the plant its smell and what guides the effect. So if something is a sativa or an indica, it has to do with the terpene profile, which is, is um, they've all different terpenes. A lot of them are found in food, but they really get, it's like the entourage, you know, this the synergistic effect of using different terpenes and cannabinoids yeah. is much better than an isolated cannabinoid. That's exactly what I was gonna say, because from my understanding is that a lot of the dispensaries and things like that, they'll just isolate THC or CBD or one, like, like they'll isolate one thing and it'll be really high in that and like next to nothing in the other. But one of my understanding was that they, like you said, the synergi synergistic um, compilation of all the different um, can cannabinoids together is what kind of gives that full effect. Yeah, it's like when someone uses flour versus a vape, right? Like the, the whole flour is made with all the cannabinoids and terpenes. The vape is just isolated THC, maybe some CBD, maybe terpenes, hopefully, which we do have in Florida. So it's a totally different feel. Um, and that's why, like, you know, even um, a, a full spectrum CBD from hemp is better than an isolate of CBD because honestly, the THC is what's activating the receptors to get them going. So if you just have a CBD isolate, you're going to need a lot more volume to get a similar effect than you would if you had a little THC. Gotcha. Um, and some of the, if you could just say a few of the, the pros and cons of cannabis, and then is there anybody specifically that you feel should not use cannabis? Um, let's see, cons, the biggest con is price, I guess. It's not covered, you know, it's not covered by insurance. That's the, you know, the biggest problem that patients have. The other issue is really consistency. Once a patient finds a product that they like, maybe they found like a, you know, a strain of flour that they really like, then they go back and they can't find the same thing. So it's really access and consistency. Um, the benefits, I mean, mental health, like for, you know, depression, for anxiety, getting patients off their benzos, off their sleep meds. For sleep, it's, I can't even tell you how many people just come to me and they're like, I tried this edible and I slept all night and, you know, I want to get off my Ambien. <laughs> I, I, like, I have patients who like fight over their Ambien, like the husband and wife, you know, they're so like, there's no, there's such issues with like sleep is such a, a problem. So I would say like definitely sleep, chronic pain, um, Parkinson's patients for movement disorders, um, cancer patients, especially. So, you know, lots, lots of pros and uh, who, who shouldn't use it. I mean, high percentages of THC in the wrong person, like someone who maybe is schizophrenic, you know, mm -hmm. can really throw them over. So a lot of people, they look for the percentage of THC in their flower. They want the highest percent THC or they're doing the concentrates or dabs or whatever. You know, that's going to build tolerance really quickly. And in the wrong person, it could really throw them over in terms of, of you know, a manic type of um, feeling. So there's not too many people, I would say, no to using cannabis. But it's just really like educating them that if they're feeling this way, not to use certain strains or maybe to add some CBD or look at the percentage of THC. Well, I mean, it, it, it's 
it's pretty nice when I, I asked one of the main doctors in Florida about this, what are the cons? And the first thing that you come up with, well, price, because from a medical standpoint, I mean, that's a great thing that like there's a there's a medicine that has very, very little downside to the overwhelming majority of people. Obviously, price is a hindrance, of course, but um, from just a pure medical standpoint, that's that's a really a really great thing. And which kind of brings us into your your research and the things that you're doing. So. Can you just tell us a little bit about the kind of research you're doing on cannabis and ketamine? Sure. Um, so initially I did research just looking at cannabis as a substitute for opioids. And I had my own patients in the study. And I saw how much of a reduction in their uh, overall opioids and the fact that it was long lasting, the fact that they never went back to it. So I think for the whole substitution effect, that's where we can use cannabis. We, it's safe, we can add it to their medication, it's not gonna cause any respiratory issues, and then we wean them slowly off their medication, but the goal is really so that it stays, right? And it's teaching them properly from the beginning. So uh, that initially was my research, and then I just finished one with FAU, where we actually got $75,000 from the Department of Health at, in the state of Florida, and we were studying the senior chronic pain and on average, their scores went down um, about five or six points on a one through 10 scale. So, yeah, that's really significant. I was just gonna say that's not yeah. like, so no, people that, have like a was, reference of what, what that is. <laughs> yeah, so that, I mean, that was like, this study we're actually just analyzing the data now. And it was really great because the state of Florida, you know, gave us this grant to, which shows that they're paying attention as, of course to the senior population, but also chronic pain because we had this huge opioid, we have this opioid epidemic and billions of dollars was just um, awarded to the state of Florida because there's been a lot of different you know, issues with the companies and big pharma and things like that. So more research is gonna happen now because we're trying to decrease people's opioids, but we need other options. And you know that's the biggest challenge. When you tell a patient, I'm gonna give you less medication, their, their question is, well, what are you giving me instead? And it's, you know, it's a slow process, but it's always nice to add something that's helpful. So. So, of course, for the senior population, cannabis is great as long as you're teaching them how to use it. Um, and we saw, saw, you know, a significant reduction there. And then I have two ketamine studies going on. One is comparing the intramuscular route of administration to a sublingual um, dose of ketamine for chronic pain and depression. A lot of the research uses IV infusions. And so sometimes we don't need infusions. Sometimes we don't need an IV it's nice to have the patient in a better setting where they don't have an IV in them. So that's why I like the intramuscular dose. Intramuscular dose, we can get to higher levels than a sublingual route, but it's basically comparing the two to see which one's more effective because there's not enough research on either one of those routes. And then the other one is a formulation that <clears throat> Sherry Kaplan, the therapist I work with made, and it's a water soluble form of a botanical, um, that she made to take away the negative side effects of ketamine. So uh, sometimes when people take ketamine, they feel dizzy, they feel nauseous, they feel tired after, and she makes this uh, formula to give them after their ketamine, and it seems to really get rid of this side effect. So we huh. did, yeah, so we did a study using 24 people. We did them in groups, so we would give them a 200 milligram lozenge of ketamine, and we did six, we did, um, six people per group which is really nice when you're doing like group psychedelic work because there's like the collective, you know, uh, process of healing where everybody is able to kind of put their ego down and share their experience. So 
anyway, we tested that formula versus placebo, and we're also analyzing that now. So that's that's some of the research I've been doing. Beautiful. And I, I should have asked you this first, but what is ketamine? And ketamine. What, like, what has it been used for? How did it come to where it is now? So ketamine is technically not a psychedelic. It's a dissociative anesthetic. And it was used in Vietnam for pain management. Um, it's been around since 1970. They use it in the OR to basically take away pain and have the person not remember what's happening. And they realized that when they woke up, they actually felt less suppressed. And so they, so originally they were using it for pain. It's a pharmaceutical that usually is used in IV. And, um, and now we're starting to use it in different routes, but also for treatment-resistant depression. The mechanism is an NMDA receptor antagonist, which is really the, the, the uh, receptor that's responsible for something called central sensitization. Central sensitization is kind of like the wind-up phenomenon, like when something happens to a patient in a hyperreactive state, their nervous system doesn't really quiet down and they start to get this wind-up phenomenon. It happens with you know, fibromyalgia, for example, chronic fatigue, many other conditions. Um, so, so ketamine kind of breaks this cycle, it blocks that NMDA receptor. It also allows the person to dissociate. So if they are depressed or um, kind of in this loop thinking, it allows them to have an experience outside of their body. They can relive an, emotion, uh, an experience without the same emotion attached to it. And um, it's very safe because it doesn't affect respiratory suppression. So like they, they'll use ketamine in um, you know, the ER, for example, for, for uh, the paramedics use it for combative patients, but it really has to do with the dose and the setting. So when we, when we do ketamine in the office, the person's in a recliner, they have eye shades on, they have headphones, they have a very relaxing playlist, and they're prepared for what potentially could happen. Um, and then it's really kind of like getting rid of your ego. You know, we call it like your default mode. Your default mode is where you default to about yourself. So when you're daydreaming and you start thinking, what, like, what are the thoughts that are going through your mind? That's your default mode. We want to, the patients who are depressed or who have had trauma, we want to dampen the default mode so that they can kind of create a new way of thinking. The analogy is like the ski slope that you go down every single time, you know, that's not really serving you anymore. And, and then you give them a psychedelic or ketamine and it's like a snow globe where you're shaking up all these connections and then the question is, okay, now what do you want your path to look like? And the person can't really see that there's another option before these psychedelics. So it's it's uh, it's mind manifesting. That's actually what sign psychedelic means. Delos means to show, and then psyche is is mind. So it's really, you know, showing you other parts that maybe you're not thinking about, and this is done because other connections are being formed. Mm -hmm. And. Um, as we kind of start to, to wind down a little bit, I, I do want to talk about um, any other kind of research that you're currently involved with, and then also psilocybin research and, and kind of where that's leading towards in the future, and, ha and how all of that, all of this kind of ties together for you and your practice. Yeah. So, like in general, all the other psychedelics right now, Maps is a big organization that they are doing a lot of their research and many other universities have psychedelic centers like Mount Sinai, John Hopkins, UCLA. They have, you know, a donor who's given their millions of dollars to do this type of research. All of these are considered schedule one drugs. So you need 
a Schedule One license in order to use any of these substances. And obviously, you know, it's, a, it's not easy to, to try to get that. So the research that's being done right now is using MDMA, which is like ecstasy or molly, but in a very not molly type of way. <laughs> like, it's a <laughs> clinical setting. <laughs> yeah, like the, and, and MDMA is, um, is not exactly a psychedelic either. They call it an empathogen. Um, it, it, it's similar in the sense that it activates the serotonin 5-HC2A receptor, but it also has that amphetamine part and it also increases oxytocin. And oxytocin is for like love, bonding, trust. So the study that they're doing at MAPS is 100 people have PTSD using MDMA with therapy. And that's the big part is that people think these medications are great and if you're doing it without therapy, you're going to get short-term results and you're going to feel amazing, which you call the afterglow effect, and then you're going to go back to your own ways. So MAPS is doing, um, they're in their phase three uh, clinical trial to get FDA approval for MDMA for PTSD. And so that should be available by the end of 2023, which would mean that you've tried and failed different uh, therapies and medications, and now your psychiatrist or your physician um, could potentially offer you MDMA for PTSD. And then psilocybin is being studied for treatment-resistant depression. There's different studies going on like USONA, COMPASS, Pathways, um, all using psilocybin with therapy for depression. Um, so, of course, the therapy part is important, but now what's happening is like the new big pharma are these privately owned companies that are um, changing a little bit of the drug. So instead of using like the fungus, you know, or instead of using the actual psilocybin or MDMA, they're using like a pro drug or an orphan drug or something similar, maybe synthetic, and then studying that for a specific indication. So it's more than just MAPS, I would say. MAPS has obviously been doing this since the 80s and they are, we're very, very grateful for all the work they've done. But it's also private companies that are coming in using these substances and um, having specific indications so that they can get FDA approval, which is amazing because it's probably going to be like FDA approved before cannabis is even descheduled, which is ridiculous. <laughs> but you know, there's a, there's a lot of like good research going on. They're doing uh, research for addiction, um, tobacco cessation. They just did a study that 80% of the people were um, able to stop using cigarettes and actually it lasted for more than a year. They have uh, studies on alcoholism at Imperial College of London and eating disorders. You know, there's, there's all different, all different conditions that they're looking, even like, you know, dementia. So wow. it's, it's an exciting time. And it's also, um, it's just a different way of practicing. It used to be like, you know, the big pharma model gets something approved. Now these companies are kind of like the new big pharma and um, they have like a, a huge, group of researchers that are all doing these type of studies to kind of shift how we've been practicing. That's amazing. And um, so you're kind of on the, the forefront of how all of these um, things are developing. And uh, I, I really look forward to, to seeing how where all this kind of leads us in the future. Um, so if you could just tell everybody a little bit about um, your practice, where you're located, any kind of like courses, lectures, things that you offer. Um, how they can get in touch with you or, or, or if you're doing telemedicine or if it's only in person, like how, how all that's kind of working. Yeah. So I, so I do have a few offices. I live in Miami, but I go to a different office every day, <laughs> um, which I like because I like 
I like different demographics. Like I, I like to kind of meet different people. And um, I'm a partner in a practice called Spine and Wellness Centers of America. It's a very large pain practice. And um, we have 12 physicians that are all interventional pain. And then I do more of the cannabis and ketamine. So I, I have offices in Kendall, Coconut Grove, Hollywood, and Boca. And I do mainly the cannabis and ketamine, you know, all of those um, offices, but I also work with one or two different therapists um, who's also in Boca and Kendall and then Aventura. My website is drmichellewiener.com and um, I'm always very accessible by email. Um, and then, you know, usually I like to do more in person than telemedicine. Sometimes I'll do like a telemedicine initial consult for ketamine, let's say, but it's always best to really like get a, a feel for the person and what their intentions are and help prepare them properly. Cannabis, unfortunately, has to be done in person because yeah. the Department of Health doesn't allow us to do telemedicine anymore. Gotcha. Makes sense. Okay, Michelle, thank you so much for, for being on here with us and, and kind of educating all of us about all the things that you're doing and like I said I'm really looking forward to where all this is going and everybody that kind of tuned in here to, to watch and if whether even if you watched it later I really appreciate you guys and uh, your comments feedbacks and, and suggestion, suggestions are always welcome um, you can check out all the episodes on my YouTube channel the art of mindful medicine or on the website www.mindful.doctor um, and of course they're on Instagram as well um, and like I always say that we're on Instagram live and the new episodes will be announced uh, at least a few days prior to give you guys a heads up. And I always end with a quote. So this is from the Bhagavad Gita. For those of you who don't know, you should definitely check out that, that book. Um, those who understand see themselves in all and all in themselves. So again, Michelle, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so, so, so much. And I hope you have a beautiful evening. And everybody also remember, stay awesome, stay mindful, and I'll see you on the next one. Thank you. Thanks, Michelle. Have a great night. <laughs>